For 2,000 years, out of joy, the Church of Jesus Christ has spread across the globe. For 2,000 years, men, women, and children have joined themselves to this church, bonded by a common faith. For 2,000 years, these people together have by faith proclaimed what they believe to the world. Many have used a simple summary, the Apostles' Creed, to do just that. This fall at Holy Cross, with the church through the ages, we do the same. And look closer at how this simple creed has summarized the teaching of the Bible and has gone from being just what Christians believe to what I believe. Pages 3 through pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you, grab a Bible if you have one. If you don't have one... uh, with you, the text is in your order of worship in the bulletin that you've got. If you don't own one, we've got several in the back we'd love to give you. We have replenished our supplies of said Bibles. They are there, so um, grab one now if you want to. I mentioned this before, but uh, we are taking the fall, which is fat, uh, quickly going away, uh, but we are taking the fall to look at the most basic of Christian creeds or uh, summaries of Christian belief, what, what is called the Apostles' Creed. It's, it's about, I don't know, 1,600, 1,700 years old and been confessed that long. It's probably the most universal of these in the sense that um, there's not a Christian denomination I, I know of that doesn't hold to the Apostles' Creed. And so in that sense, it's kind of a baseline of Christian belief. What's, what's that, that least common denominator type thing? So we're taking the... the Passages of the Bible that inform that creed, we're taking one week to kind of look at, look at them, okay? And this is the last of five sermons in which we are looking at what theologians call the person and the work of Jesus, uh, who he is, what he came to do, what he accomplished. Last week we looked at the resurrection of Jesus, and this week we look to a little known or uh, probably little regarded aspect of what Jesus did, his ascension into heaven. If you have your place in Hebrews, we're in Hebrews 2, if you'd stand in honor of God's word. Um, That's our practice here. We're just going to be reading Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 9, okay? This is God's word. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little... For a little while lower than the angels, and have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Yet at present, we do not see yet everything in subjected to him, but we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death. For everyone. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Father, we need to hear from from you this morning, not from me. We need the grace of the gospel, not the tickling of our ears. We need the comfort that can only come through God's word, not uh, the chicken soup for the soul. We, We need you to preach your word to us, because if you don't, we're going to leave here uh, and have wasted our time. So Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts to do that. You would speak to them, 
that you would preach Christ and him crucified, risen and ascended to us. And that, Lord, we might go from this place uh, in wonder of what Jesus has done, but also ready to get to work. Because, Lord, just as the angel said to his disciples, as they wondered at Christ's ascension, said, what are you, why are you standing, here, standing around here? It's time to get to work. And so, Lord, fill us with your grace so that we might go and take that grace to our city. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. <clears throat> All right, so the two, the big two of the Christian holidays are what? Christmas and Easter, right? Everybody, everybody gets Christmas and Easter. Our society gets Christmas and Easter, even though it is by no stretch a Christian society. Christmas and Easter are the big two. Now, if you've been part of a liturgical tradition, that's, a, that's kind of a, a, a higher church model, one that kind of... Uh, goes with the Christian year, you've probably heard of some other Christian holidays, right? Things like Lent, it's a season of 40 days of preparation before Easter. Things like um, maybe even Pentecost, which is not just part of the charismatic tradition. In fact, the, the liturgical tradition created that. It's the celebration of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, we, we, we kind of get those, and maybe you've gotten those, but if you're really into the idea of the Christian calendar, then there's this other day. It's called Ascension comes before Pentecost. It's ascension. The word means going up. So the image that we have is, of course, Jesus taking off into space, right? Like, that's the way we normally think of ascension. Let's be honest. We think of the idea of Jesus kind of surfing on a cloud up into the sky until he's no longer seen. Uh, But what isn't meant by ascension is simply Jesus going to heaven. That's how we all, a lot of us kind of think of it. The, the ascension is Jesus going to heaven after he died. But remember, Jesus died, but then he rose. And so the ascension isn't so much Jesus going up into heaven as it is Jesus ascending a throne. It's coronation day. It's the day in which Jesus goes and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, being enthroned as king over all creation. How often, if you're a Christian here this morning, let's be honest, like how often do we actually think about the fact that Jesus right now, right now, rules over everything there is? My guess is not often, because if you're, you know, look, we're human, so we're filled with anxieties and fears. What's tomorrow going to bring? How are things going to work out? I would bet practically we don't believe in this at all. So our passage this morning talks about Jesus' reign, but also how that reign, in fact, involves us. So we're going to look at this passage in three ways this morning. We're going to look at um, a question of vocation. We're going to look at a question of representation. And then we're going to look at a question of actualization. Okay? Vocation, what we are called to, representation, how Jesus actually accomplished that, and actualization, how we're supposed to work that out, okay? So let's begin with the question of vocation first by looking how lofty it is. Look down at verses 5 to 8. And before we even read this text, we've got to deal with this issue of angels. Okay, so if you're, if you're new to the Bible and you're hearing this, you're like, what is he talking about? Like, he starts this off with, like, it's not to angels that God subjected the world. Like, what? Like, who even begins talking about that? So 
the, the letter of the Hebrews, um, which was probably a sermon that was transcribed, was, um, was written to a group of people who were having a little bit of a hard time, amongst other things, figuring out where to put Jesus in their classification. Where does he fit? We know that you've got, there's, there's God the Father, but then there's this Jesus guy, does he... Where is he, the angels between him and God? Or how does, this, how does this work? There's all this speculation going on. Um, is he a bigger deal than the angels? Or is he just like us or what? And so the first couple of chapters is establishing that Jesus is better than the angels. <laughs> but in many ways by saying, and so are we. Here's, here's how that, we'll, we'll get to that more in a second. But here's how he begins. He says, it wasn't to angels that God subjected the world to come of what you're speaking. Okay. Now, if, if this is your first time at Holy Cross or your first time at church, I'm about to dive in the deep end, so I just need you to stick with me. The rest of you can stick with me, too, but we're going to d- dive into the deep end here, okay? The story of the Bible is that the world is not as it is or not as it will be. That's not exactly the deep end. That's just common sense, all right? But, but here we go. What I mean is that the world was created to be a perfect reflection of the rule and reign of God. And that as, um, as humans, we were created in God's image to be his vice regents over creation. That means that we were, we were created to rule. But not to enact some kind of exploitive rule over creation, but in fact to, to reign, to, that God would exercise his rule through us. We were made as God's image bearers to enact God's rule as stewards to rule it as he would but the problem is and and you know this right things aren't really like that right now are they and that is because the bible also says that we turned from him we sought our own way we sought to be independent of him we rebelled against his rule that's what sin is it's a relational break with god in which we seek our independence from him and when we did sin entered the world so that now uh, though though everything was made to to uh, kind of line up under our rule, everything kind of rebelled. We're going to get to that again in a second. But God promised to fix what we broke. Not just us, but also the world. And the Bible tells us that when he finishes his work, when he finishes, there's a consummation of all he's done, there will be a new creation. Not completely dissimilar to this one. Not Not a starting over from scratch into a spiritual reality, but a transformation of what is to what was always meant to be. So our authors, the author of Hebrews is saying that, that it isn't, that that world that's coming, angels weren't meant to rule over that. Humanity was. It is. And he drives that home by quoting from the Old Testament. He says, it's been testified somewhere. Now stop there. This is a huge comfort to any of us who have a really hard time memorizing scripture and have a really hard time memorizing where those passages come from. Because the writer of the Hebrews doesn't know either, okay? Which is awesome. God put it in his own Bible that, look, get the passage. The address isn't quite as important, okay? So that's helpful for me. If it's not for you, then that's okay. So uh, what he quotes, though, should sound familiar. Because it's what Brandon read for us. It's Psalm 8. And what Psalm 8 is, is it's a, a poetical description of God's creation of humanity. And so he says this. He quotes this. He says, you made him for a little while lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, it's important to understand that when he says he and his, he means humans. He's speaking in the generic, because that's what Psalm 8 is talking about. He's talking about humanity, made 
for a little while lower than the angels in terms of some kind of, I don't know, divine order of being, but crowned with glory and honor to rule and reign. Remember what I said a second ago. Humanity was created to rule creation, or rather to enact God's rule. And God's rule is a rule that seeks the flourishing of all that is under it. And that's really important as an aside, just as an aside. For a Christian view of authority, Christians understand authority, or at least the Bible teaches authority, from the standpoint of authority is there for the flourishing of all that are under it. Authority and power is not there to somehow promote the one who has it. It is there simply and purely. God puts people in authority to use their gifts to see everyone under them flourish. And if that is not the kind of authority we see practice, it is not Christian. And we need not um, prop it up, uh, proclaim its excellencies. (laughs) It is not. Okay? It's not Christian. Doesn't mean we don't follow it. Just means it's not Christian. So, we were created to rule in such a way that we served creation to bring out its best. And this really says two things that we need to get. If we were created to serve creation to bring out its best, to bring out its flourishing, that means first and foremost that creation is not at its best when it's purely left alone. Right? And that's kind of the the, the argument of those who tend to believe that humanity is a form of virus And as we're multiplying, we're just kind of destroying everything in our wake, and everything would be better if there was only like three of us. We just let everything run wild. But the Bible teaches that creation has potential, but that it needs to be tilled, it needs to be tended. Okay? It needs to be shaped. So, first and foremost, creation isn't necessarily its best when left alone. But second, humanity also was not simply meant to exploit creation for our own ends. And that presses against those who see all of creation as simply a mass of resources that's to be used no matter what. It's not that. We don't own creation. We are stewards of it. And we will be held to account of how we've used it. Because it's not ours, it's God's. Okay? We're to seek its flourishing. And so the bottom line is that this points to the reality that humanity was created to reign over creation. But the problem is, we failed at that. It's a failed vocation. Look down at verse 8. Because our author says, at present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. Again, by him, what he means is the generic. He means humanity. We, right now, look around. We don't see everything in subjection. Let me ask you, how many of you own houses? Okay, if you own a house, how many of you are able to tell the weeds to get out of your lawn? Yeah, me either. It doesn't work. That's not the way it works. Not everything is in subjection. What he's declaring, what our author is declaring here, is what you and I know by looking around. It doesn't look very much like creation is subjected to us. And this is because of our failure. God created all things to hold together in this perfect set of relationships, perfectly uh, reconciled relationships that's called, in the Bible, shalom. Okay, that's a Hebrew word that's translated peace, Uh, It doesn't just mean, though, that nobody's fighting. It means that everything is lining up exactly as it should. It was was, uh, God and us and creation all in kind of this perfect, unbroken relationship. We were created for that kind of unbroken relationship with all three. But the problem is 
that to have those relationships lined up, the primary one between us and God had to be one in which we were dependent on him. Fully dependent. Like looking to him for our life, our value, our hope, our, our understanding of reality, uh, everything, our satisfaction. But there in the beginning we turned from him. And when we did, shalom came unglued. It came unhinged. And everything kind of got disrupted and, and twisted. We failed at what we were meant to be. And when we did, sin entered the world. We became alienated from God. That relationship between us and God became fractured. And, and now, creation doesn't respond to us either. And we use creation to our own ends. Everything is messed up. And so now the Bible teaches that all of us, all of humanity, is now by nature independent of God. We're all kind of turned from him. We want our own way. We look out for number one instead of loving God with all of our being, instead of loving our neighbor, which is another way of saying the person sitting next to you or the person sitting across from you, other people. Instead of loving them as ourselves. We were meant to exist with an, an outward orientation, but now, because of sin, we've been turned in on ourselves. Got me? And you get this, right? This is why you and I are so motivated by self-interest. The Bible argues that sin isn't just what we do, it's who we are. And we're now born into a state in which we are oriented not towards others and God, but towards ourselves. Now, some of you are probably arguing with me right now because you're like, no, I'm not. Like, I like to serve people all the time. I'm a nice person. I do nice things for nice people. I'll grant that. But my question would be, why do you do that? See, one of the, one of the tricky things about Christianity, one of the things that if you really understand it, it's going to drive you the most crazy, is that it's not so much about what you do, but why you do it. Because Christianity is not about behaviors, it's about the heart. And the heart's a tricksy little thing. Like, it messes with you. Because we are, we are so prone to self-deception. See, many of us serve others because of what it's going to give us. We serve others because it'll make us look good. We'll get a good reputation. We'll get a name from it. Uh, we'll get a feeling of being good. We like the way it makes us feel. Do we really care about the other person? Not so much, but it really makes us feel good. Some of us do it because we are intensely guilty. We are intensely guilty, and we are looking for anything we can to appease that sense of guilt kind of make up for our failures. But some of us, some of us believe we are so intensely other-centered that in fact what we really need to do is learn how to take care of ourselves because what we do most is we take care of everybody else. <laughs> what I just said, that heart's a tricksy thing. Why do you think you do that? Why do you think you do that? Why do you think you do the doormat thing? Because I'll tell you what, like I've been doing this for, for over a decade now. I've talked to a lot of people uh, and I can tell you what I've learned. Most people who struggle with being a doormat do it. Not because they're so intensely loving towards another person, but because they are very loving towards themselves. And so you'll lay down your life to get, to get trampled on so that you can get peace. Keep everything calm. So that you can get love. It's better than being alone. So you can get acceptance. At least I get invited to parties. So you can get power. I know what to expect, right? Here's the thing. We were made for God. We were made to be filled by him in such a way that we can give ourselves away 
but we are separated from him and so desperately trying to fill ourselves and we use others to that end. Which is another way of saying, you and I are broken. Guilty of betraying God. And that all of creation is broken right along with us. We had a vocation. That vocation was to live out the the wonderful stewardship and the rule and reign of God by loving him with all of our heart, loving others as ourselves, and seeking to see everything under our authority flourish. But instead we turned from him, broke relationship, and then became uh, absolutely obsessed with getting for ourselves. We're broken. But our passage doesn't end with us failing. It moves on as all Christian thought needs to to Jesus. So look down at verse 9 for an accomplished vocation. He says this. But we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Okay, now let me be clear on something. Like I said before, many scholars, most in fact, who, who study the book of Hebrews, believe this is a sermon. That this is a sermon that was preached to a congregation. And so... Uh, One of the reasons that we think that and that scholars believe that is because of things like this. The guy is literally taking a passage of the Old Testament and showing you how it is that Jesus fulfills it. That's the Christian way of understanding the Old Testament. It's not to see it in terms of just kind of purely prophecies to be fulfilled or maxims to be followed. It's a story that leads to fulfillment in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so what we have here is someone teaching us how to interpret the Old Testament, but not as you might think. You see, we can read this and think, oh, I get it. Psalm 8, what he's telling us is that Psalm 8 is actually about Jesus. Yes and no. Yes and no. It is, but probably not in the way you think. So when we read Psalm 8, what we see is we see that humanity was created to rule over creation. And that's what we were made to do, to have all things under our feet. But because we are now independent of God, that can't happen, right? We, we, we just got that. Hopefully you're all like, yes, I got that. All right, so we, God had promised, however, to make things right and to do that through humanity, through, in fact, the family of this guy named Abraham. But the problem is the family of Abraham was just as messed up as the rest of us, so that couldn't happen through him. So God became part of Abraham's family in Jesus to rescue us. And so when, th- when this author is talking about Jesus being crowned with glory and honor, he doesn't mean as God. He means as a human. As the human. As the truly human, the most human. Human as we were meant to be. Jesus is what humanity was meant to be. But in that, as the truly human one, he became the ruler and the rescuer we needed. So when we talk about Jesus ascending to the throne, we don't mean ascending to the throne as God the Son. He was always on God's throne as God the Son. We're talking about as that Jesus is taking the throne as the God-man. He became what we were originally meant to be, but couldn't be because of sin. Jesus accomplished the vocation that you and I couldn't. He's crowned with glory and honor because we couldn't be. And he did what we couldn't, but he did it for us, and he did it in our place. But how, right? Let's keep reading, see how he accomplished it. 
In verse 9, he says this. He says that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because, and if you're reading your own Bible, go ahead and underline that, because. Very important. Because. Why is he crowned with glory and honor? Because of the suffering of death. So that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And this is so important, so, so stick with me. Jesus ascended to the throne of heaven, the throne of God, sitting at the right hand of God because of what he did here on earth. Humanity is broken, stuck in our independence. Not a one of us can actually attain to God. We can't achieve God. And left to our own, Apostle Paul tells us, we want nothing to do with him. We hate him. And so Jesus came and he actively kept the law. He lived as dependent as we were made to. But also because God couldn't just overlook sin. He can't just wink at injustice. Wink at the evils that we do to one another and to ourselves. He bore the judgment due for our betrayal. That is what it means when he says he tastes death for all. In the place of. And the key to it all comes down to that little word, grace. See, I don't really care if you've been coming to this church for a long time, heard me talk about this forever, or you just walked in. My guess is that you're like me, which means that you, you consistently tend to believe, to think, that your relationship with God depends everything on you. If you've been a Christian a long time, that probably looks like my relationship with God depends on how much Bible I've read that day, how much I've prayed, uh, you know, uh, whether I've been looking at stuff I shouldn't be looking at, saying things I shouldn't be saying. It all about, it's all about abstaining from bad stuff, right? How good I'm doing. How well I perform. Am I spiritual enough, good enough, tolerant enough? Listen to me. If you were enough, you wouldn't need to be dependent, would you? If you were enough, you wouldn't need God, would you? You'd be enough. But you can't be. It's impossible. But God, out of grace, came to rescue you and me and all of creation in Jesus. Grace. Grace. It means an unmerited favor. It's something you cannot possibly earn. And something that, because you can't earn it, you also can't be too far gone for. Listen to me. I, and I know this is like so counterintuitive. Because some of us in this room probably, I don't even need to say probably, some of us in this room believe that we are too far gone for God to love us. Right? Let me ask you a question. I know you think that's really probably very humble to think that. It borders on self-loathing, right? Do you recognize how arrogant it is to believe that you are so unique amongst all of humanity that God and the work of Jesus can't actually save you? He can save everybody else. Everybody else is, I mean, they're all not as broken as me. I am unique amongst all of humanity in my brokenness. God can love everyone else but me. That's not humble. That's as arrogant as it comes. Grace means that you don't deserve it, and neither do I. And neither does, I don't know, the most spiritual person you can imagine. The only person who deserved anything from God is Jesus. He exercised what he did for us, not for himself. 
Jesus accomplished what he couldn't, what we couldn't. He took his place as the true humanity by rescuing us and restoring creation to what it was meant to be. Now, before I move on from this, let me tie these things together. The Bible teaches that we were created to rule over creation, right? I hope I've hammered that enough. We get that. But that we had forfeited that, at least as it was intended to be, because of our sin. But Jesus came to restore us to that. Now, some of you are like, I don't know, Rick. Let's be honest. Like, I look around. I don't, it doesn't look like Jesus is reigning. Uh, that, you know, how, is that, how is that possible that things could be this messed up and Jesus could still be reigning? That's a great question. The answer, as the Bible teaches it, is that Jesus does reign now. But the fullness of that reign will only be realized when he comes to make everything new. But now, because of his work to reconcile us to God, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, that's who we're going to talk about next week, we live out the vocation that he accomplished for us. That is why in Acts 1 that Brandon read, the angels are stand, they, they appear standing next to, it's like you see all these guys looking up, and two angels show up and they're like, yeah? And then they're like, why are you standing around? He's on the throne now. It's time to go live that out. It's time to go live that out. Go live out the vocation that he accomplished for you. All right, now, let's get to why this matters. Because saying all that sounds all good, maybe... Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you're like, that's the most boring thing I've ever heard. But uh, hopefully it sounds like, wow, that's really cool. But what does it matter day to day? What does it matter for us day to day? How do we actualize this in our lives? First, what I'd say is it means a new citizenship. It means a new citizenship. And this is never more important for Christians in America than every four years. During an election year, is this the most important thing? If you were a Christian here this morning, listen to me. Your primary allegiance is to the king, Jesus. It is not to a flag, a party, or a platform. It is to Jesus. And Jesus is not owned by any of those things. Let me say that again. Jesus is not owned by a flag, a party, or a platform. He is the ruler of all creation. All of the nations are ruled by Jesus. Not one. All of them. Let me be even clearer. Jesus reigns on his throne no matter who wins an election. No matter who sits on a court, regardless of how supreme. It's not as supreme, by the way. No matter who has the supposed power and cultural influence, Jesus reigns over all the earth. It was true when Paul went through the Mediterranean world preaching another king, namely Jesus, under the nose of Caesar Nero. It was also true when that Nero had Paul put to death. It was true when Christians were being murdered by the Roman government, and it was true... When the Roman emperor became a Christian. It is true in the U.S. And it is true in China. In Afghanistan. In Syria. In Iran. Everywhere. 
As the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said, Jesus now looks over all of creation and he says, there is not one inch of this that is not mine. We need to remember this. This means something very particular for us. If Jesus reigns, then we live as a city within a city. Uh, the 5th the century church father, St. Saint, um, Augustine, which by the way, Augustine is in Florida, okay? Augustine is in heaven. Let's make sure we understand that. The 5th century church father, St. Augustine, um, wrote a work called The City of God, and he wrote that when Christians were trying to reckon with the fall of Rome. How do we deal with the fall of the eternal city, the city that would never be shaken, the city that we had assumed was the city of God? And, And Augustine says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. That's the city of man. There is a city of God, and it cannot be shaken, but it is not where you think it is. As Christians, we live as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, a heavenly city in the midst of an earthly one. Earthly cities rise and fall, but the heavenly one cannot because Jesus reigns. He is seated at the right hand of God, and so his kingdom cannot be shaken. And so what that means for us is that as citizens of his kingdom, we have a different set of values, not defined by any party's platform, or by the pragmatic lie of the lesser of two evils. We seek to flourish our community no matter who rules. Seek to live as great citizens, uh, the greatest of citizens. Seeking the best of our community as it lines up with his kingdom. But where it does not, where where that community, where that government, where that party, where that flag does not line up with his kingdom, we must speak So that our city, our country, our community will flourish. Because we believe what is true. That humanity will only flourish when we are fully in line with his kingdom. We do not stay silent because of loyalty to a party or an ideology. We call sin, sin. We can be honest because our king reigns. So if you are a Christian here this morning, your allegiance... Your citizenship is tied to Jesus. And it will be such whether you live here, in a communist country, or under Sharia law. Your king is Jesus. But it also means realizing his reign. Because if that's the case, (laughs) if that's the case that Jesus reigns now, and does so through his people living out his rule in the midst of the places that he has placed them, how should that look? To be glib, it it influences everything. It changes everything. How does the rule of Jesus affect my work? How does it affect my work day to day? What it means for you in your work is that you do not answer to your employer, ultimately, or to your shareholders. (laughs) To claim that you have to violate your your Christian conscience to exploit people's weaknesses, in other words, to use them to flourish your company while you're hurting them, or to use employees or coworkers to make your shareholders happy, is to say that Jesus reigns everywhere except my business. Or over my life as a worker. How does the reign of Jesus affect how I approach my neighborhood? What it means is that when you walk into, on your block, when you're, or, or 
down your street or whatever it is, as you are in your neighborhood, it means that you are an ambassador of the kingdom of God in your neighborhood. And so where the culture of your particular neighborhood, and some of us live in very disparate cultures in our neighborhoods, but where the, the culture of your neighborhood clashes with Christ, Jesus must win. We seek our neighborhood's shalom because that is how Jesus' rule is worked out. If we stand by while the brokenness in our neighborhood is left unprayed for, unspoken to, and unacted towards, we betray that allegiance. Our allegiance then is not with Jesus at all. It's with our culture. How does this reign of of Jesus affect my citizenship? Like I said, it means we live in our city seeking the flourishing of our community and not the flourishing of our political ideology or party. We seek to have just laws and merciful systems. We understand that ultimately the kingdom of God is not fundamentally accomplished in a voting booth, but in a prayer closet and in the lives of others. Now, I know some of you are, some of you are like wondering, we'll just say wondering, whether or not I'm going to speak to how we should be approaching this election as Christians. I will say only this, fear, whether that fear is of uncontrollable cultural drift or of a boisterous bully is not, is not a Christian motivation for political involvement. Jesus reigns. Jesus has not been cast from his throne by cultural powers the mainstream media, or the fear of an ignorant electorate. We are not to cave to any reductionist arguments about how not voting for one is voting for another. That is fear-mongering. And Christians have a ruler that cannot be shaken. There is no room for fear in our political involvement. Both parties are broken. Clearly, both main candidates are broken. Desperately, And any attempt to gloss over the brokenness of one by pointing at the other is wrong. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> Let me close. If you have more questions on that, you can come talk to me. Okay. Let me close. The ascension of Jesus means that your king reigns right now. The ascension of Jesus means that your advocate, the one who came to live, die, and rise again for you, sits at the right hand of the Father. And you know what that means? That means that the voice, this voice that you know is for you because you've seen him through the scriptures act for you is sitting to intercede for you at the nearest spot next to God the Father. And the ascension of Jesus means that through faith, through faith, You will one day join him, not in heaven, on the throne, on the throne of God, where Paul says in Ephesians, we are seated right now with Christ in the heavens. One day, because of the ascension of Jesus, we will join him in reigning over creation as we were intended to be, as God's image bearer seeking the flourishing of all 
that God has placed under us. And so now, when we go from here, we go as those living into that right now. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we are a fearful people. We are a people who are, um, man, can we get caught up in the uproar and forget that we are citizens of a city whose foundations were laid by God that cannot be shaken The earth might be shaken, but not your kingdom, O Jesus. So as we, as we come and we reflect on that and we sing your praise and we come to your table and we, we go out into our world, let us go as those full of confidence, not in any earthly power, but in the reign of Christ knowing that, Lord, you will bring about the fullness of your kingdom in your time, that nothing has happened that, that removes you from that throne because you are worthy of it. You are worthy, in fact, Lord Jesus, for all power and glory and dominion now and always. And so it's in your great name we pray. Amen.